Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Your Bibles to Psalm 102. Psalm 102. We're going to be looking at verse 25 through 27. This serves as a springboard text. I learned that phrase from Butch Rumble, our sister church that sent us. This is going to be a little bit more of a topic. And David, I, I resonate with you. We don't do topics here that often. When we do, there's good reason. Today's reason is Jeff's not here. I can do whatever I want. Uh, our topic is going to be a theological topic. Now, I know that might make some of you feel uncomfortable or nervous, and there's good reason for that. Uh, we are a church that we do not like to cherry-pick different verses we like and then avoid things that are a little scary or controversial or we really honestly don't know anything about. Many times I go through the Word and I'm thinking, I don't know what this means, let alone do I know how to preach it. But we don't cherry-pick, so we go through and we... We pray to God, we search the scriptures, we look at wiser people throughout church history, we ask our spouses, and we try and get as much of an understanding as we can to get everything we can out of God's word and to be faithful to it because we don't want to just be copying and pasting and creating our own little warm, fuzzy religion and our own ideology that looks just like us and never improves us. But we're going to be looking at a topic today called the immutability of God. One of the biggest reasons why I want to teach on the immutability of God is because we have kids here. That simply means God does not change. I think four-year-olds and up can understand that. And you have a four-year-old, you're rescued. You can do nursery. Five, we'll pray and we'll put hands on them, on you. God does not change. And that's something really important for us to know. We'll get to reasons why this is for your benefit, God does not change, and some reasons why man would be tempted for God to change. But he is immutable, that means he does not mutate, he does not deform, he is fine with how he is. He's perfect. Hopefully you've turned to Psalm 102, let's go to verse 25. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. This is the word of the Lord. One of the reasons I think we can do this passage, a, a theological topic today, is because God commands us to worship Him in heart, soul, mind, and strength. This might exercise your mind today, but I, I want to encourage you to worship God with your mind. And this is going to be a part two sermon, which means it's going to be brief survey over this topic, okay? This isn't going to be a, a five-part series where we start going into Latin and Hebrew and Greek and pronouncing German theologians. We're not going to do that. But this is definitely a pursuit of the mind. 
And some people get nervous with saying, we need to keep it just simple, just basic. Our job is to make disciples. And that's true. Our job is to make disciples. But I don't think the church is suffering from robust, full-blown theology. I think it's the exact opposite. And I get a very healthy diet of what theology is out there as I'm a chaplain. I visit somewhere between 15 to 20 odd patients a day. And I'll ask them what's their hope, what faith traditions they rely on, what they have heard from God, how they're pursuing Him, their ideas of God's will, God's blessing, karma, kitty cats in heaven. It, it, it shows, and cats aren't in heaven, dogs maybe. <laughs> I think that's Jeff's joke from a couple years ago. It's not mine. It shows that we are anemic in theology. So we're going to worship our Lord with our minds. I want this to be an encouragement to you to see that theology, it does matter. Life is difficult and complex. Um, I mean, mask or no mask, who to vote for, where you're going to live, things like this, that's complex. Wouldn't you think God's just a little bit more complex? He's more complex than, than a shot. More complex if you show your teeth or not. More complex about real estate location. And that's, that's beautiful. Complexities are beautiful. Men that are married, you can agree. Complexities are beautiful. You've married someone that has more emotion than hungry and I itch. And they're beautiful. Theology helps us cipher through, oftentimes, what is good and what is best. We have a hard time struggling between career, children's education, managing time, managing money. But we also wrestle with knowing what is right and, and what is wrong. How do I honor God in impossible situations? How do I make sense of suffering or evil? Are there times where it's right to do the wrong thing? Not long ago, I was in the car driving with Naphtali, my oldest, and she asked me, Dad, is it wrong to want to die? I had no clue where that came from. No clue. That's a, that's a complex subject. That's not an easy yes or, or no in my book. So I tell her, well, you know, there's a time when it's right to want to be with the Lord. You feel like you have fulfilled your calling on this life. You're advanced in age. You hunger for his glory and for paradise. You feel like if you entered before the throne, he would say, well done, good and faithful servant. So I'm giving my 10-year-old a very careful, very cautious, <clears throat> sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's right to want to pass away. But sometimes it's wrong. Sometimes it's about wanting to escape. Sometimes our, our, our faith is weak and we need that encouragement. Sometimes it's sin, it's hopelessness. <clears throat> I asked her, where did that come from? 
She said the Disney movie Incredibles or, or Pixar. I don't know which one. I'm not preaching against Incredibles. And if you know what, don't know what that is, that, that's fine. It's just a little kid's movie. In, in that movie, one character jumps out of a building and Mr. Incredible rescues the person. My, my daughter sees that and she thinks, why would someone want to jump outside of a building? We need theology. We need robust answers. And how beautiful is it for us to look at an attribute of God like his immutability? Another reason why to preach this is I want our joy in God to increase. Every time I've looked at a different attribute of God, if it's his his eternality, if it's his power, if it's his knowledge, all the ology and isms just get me excited, they're an encouragement. I walk away with a greater awe of God and a greater trust in him, and I usually don't come out with a hard brow ready to just beat up heretics. That, that might be you, and you might have to guard your heart from some pride. But I want this to be joyful. What we find in this Psalms is that the foundations of the earth will wear out. In verse 25, the psalmist says that of old, God created the earth and the heavens. They're from his handiwork. This morning, when you were in bed and you decided to get up, you did not put your toe out gently, wondering if you were going to fall into nothingness. When you got in your car today, you had, you had no thought of, maybe there might be an earthquake today or the stars might fall upon me and it will be all over. We assume, and I think rightfully so, tomorrow will happen and we will be fine. The psalmist tells us, though, these things are matters that we rely on and trust on. But God outlasts them. And God has no beginning. And these things will perish. He is ever-knowing. He is ever-being. And never-changing. So we're going to answer some questions this morning. Why is this important that God's immutable without change? Why would we want a different kind of God? Doesn't the Bible show us pictures of God changing? What benefit do we find in a God that never changes? So first of the importance is this speaks of God's perfection. One way in which God cannot change is because he cannot improve himself. I was not brave enough to show you one of those 25 random facts about yourself that I filled out 12 years ago, and and it's on Facebook. So if you go in my timeline, I don't recommend, and you scroll 12 years in the past, which I don't recommend, you will find this little fact sheet about Daniel Lawson. And the little things that I thought were of priority are too embarrassing for me to put behind this pulpit. Okay, Uh, And it showed for me, not only has priority changed, the way in which I approach myself has changed. I mean, now all I do in social media is like Puritan theologians, pictures of my kids, and maybe a random chess joke, which no one laughs at. (laughs) You laugh at me for a different reason, Josh. You don't know the chess. (laughs) 
I have changed dramatically in 12 years, and, and most of it for the good. God does not need to change. The idea of God changing means that he either needs to become more greater. There's an area of defect that needs improvement, or, this is scary, God might change for the worse. He might decide to be less forgiving or less righteous, less powerful. Forget. Let, let that tease out for a moment. What would the world look like if God just had the uh-oh moment and forgot? He is the source of all life and being and substance. Logic and mathematics, let alone butterflies, do not exist outside of God and the source of power that he is. So he cannot change because he cannot be perfected. We change, we get older, we pray that we get wisdom and understanding. Also, our emotions and our affections change. You want to see my emotions change? Watch me parent. You want to see my emotions change? Ride, me, ride with me as I head to Decatur in the early morning where I set up plenty of time to get there. And yet, always happens, church street exit, waiting an extra 15 minutes out of nowhere. My affections and my emotions change. Quoting one theologian today from uh, Herman Bovnik. He was born between the 18 and 1900s. The doctrine of God's immutability is of the highest significance for religion. The contrast between being and becoming marks a difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is continually becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction, and finds this rest in God, in him alone, for only he is pure being and no becoming. Hence, in scripture, God is often called the rock. The rock can represent something that does not change, and that is consistent. You, you don't just pick it up like silly putty and then invent something else with, with rock. Rock is rock. It's always rock. It's going to be rock. It has been rock. God's immutability, the, the reality that he does not change, points that God is the author and creator and that he is our ultimate authority and that he is truly independent, pure being from which we all rely on for our life. So I said I was going to make one of the purposes for this was for the children. So if you're between five and I'm going to say 22, God does not change. And if he were to do so, it would mean he is not in charge. If God changed... That means something bigger than him is doing something to him. And that can't happen. For adults, God is greater than the idea of big or bigger. And God is greater than the idea of time. These things do not influence him, though he uses them. 
And though we're submissive to them, these are orders and realities the Almighty, the true being, uses in communicating with us and managing His creation. One of the reasons why we hold to the immutability of God is also the Scripture has testimony of God being without change. A common passage shared on this doctrine is Malachi 3.6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Numbers 23.19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and, ha- and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not make it good? In Numbers' situation, it, it, it puts God's immutability before honesty. God does not misspeak. God does not lie. It's an issue of immorality. Therefore, what God says does not change. God knows all truth and walks, all, and walks in all truth. 1 Samuel 5.29 Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. We have preferences and our own appetites. We have those aha moments. We have those experiences where we messed up or it could have been a little bit smoother and so we autocorrect, we change things up. But God does not experience or go forward in life in this way. He, that's where he's completely other. And this is what's hard for us to comprehend because we are constantly changing. What you feel like doing tonight in this moment could radically change tonight. And what you pursue in college, young college students, might be totally radically different from what you actually do. I mean, that was my story. Now, there's a question, why would we want a God that can change? And, and that, that's an that's a interesting question to play with. There, there are a lot of individuals that love the idea that God changes and that he can change. One is for license. We're the exception. We are different. I have a special agreement with God. I know how the world works, but I said this sincere prayer in a back alley behind Chevron. We have a deal. I don't have to be faithful in this, or I don't have to bear fruit with that, or I can do whatever I want with all of my life except for the last 15 seconds or so, um, because I have a deal and I'm the exception. I know what the, what the Bible says, but have you seen me. Don't, 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 don't say that all these judgments or all these statutes or, or in the way in which God communicates and interacts with us would, would say that I'm in the wrong. No. God really, really loves me, and therefore all of these books and passages, they are loving suggestions. It's just like a parent, parent counting to ten throughout my entire life with no consequence. 
So, of course, we want a God that can change. Also, pride. Culture says this. The Bible doesn't like it. Or science has discovered this as if Christianity is at war with science. And it's not. Values change. I'm having to redirect some of my language when I, when I visit new young families. I'm having to be careful with how I address someone with pronouns because of crazy values. It's just time to improve and freshen up God. No. It's our pride that wants to change God. We come before God with our culture, with our science, with our values, and we say, you need to bow to us. We're more loving than you are. We're more wise than you are. We're more understanding than you are. We're more flexible than you are, which means we're really good and we're trying to help you. And that's blasphemous. Also, shame. Why would we want to change God? Because we're ashamed of ourselves. We come up with wild interpretations of the Bible. Or we add new books and prayers and so forth. We create a false gospel of doing really good, and that will save you. And, and I'm really bad. I'm so glad I don't come to my Heavenly Father because I'm good, but I, I do it drenched in Christ's blood. We also redefine words in place of God, and we think that he's a life coach. We don't turn him into our authority. He's the guy that was just there when some things started evolving, breathing love on us, walking with us, being sympathetic with us, and we're really in the dumps, and he's just there to whisper in our ear, it's okay. Now, a great question to answer is, does the Bible show God changing his mind? That's the fun question to answer. Because there are several passages you're like, what in the world? So we have in Malachi, we have in the Psalms, we even have James mentioned that God is without change. But then we have places like 1 Samuel 15, where it says, God regretted placing Saul as king. Saul was a terrible king. He didn't quash, squash the Philistines. Unfaithful. Couldn't find a donkey. I've mentioned that before. God shares, I regret that I ever placed that man on the throne. What's going on there? Did God just not know what Saul was going to do? Was it, let's uh, go ahead, Samuel, anoint him, and then let's just see what happens here. No, that's not what happened. In the middle of verses, uh, verse 11 and 35 of 1 Samuel 15, we have verse 29. I think I have that verse. One second. Verse 39 says, Also the glory of Israel will not lie or... Sorry. Also the glory of Israel, that's God, will not lie or change his mind. For he's not a man that he should change 
his mind. Right in the middle of this passage of God saying, I repent, I regret, he says, I am not like a man. I do not lie. I do not regret. Well, what's happening there? It's a lot of fun study. We're going to summarize really briefly, though. God is speaking in human language, in human terms. The authors of the Bible aren't stupid. And they're not writing contradiction after contradiction. Representing God, they're using language we understand. God sees Saul as a failed king. And he mentions how disappointed he is in his son leading the nation. But there is a reason why Saul was chosen to be king. To show the nations the foolishness of men. And the consequence of them wanting to go outside of what God desired for them. As they elected someone to represent them. As they wanted to fit in and be like the other nations that had kings. Other nations didn't follow some invisible God that didn't like images. Think of also Jonah. I love Jonah. At the very beginning, he says, go and preach doom against Nineveh. I'm going to destroy them. And Jonah, in chapter 4, gets really ticked off at God. Uh, Jonah 4, verse 2 through 3, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Jonah knew God. Doesn't mean he was obedient and a and a A star prophet. He knew what God was going to do. But didn't he say doom? Yes, he did. One way to look at these passages of God changing his mind is God's plan A, part one. And then God's plan A, part two. Not, not an A and then a B. Jonah isn't this book of, I'm going to squash you and kill you. And, oh, you guys have fasted and, and you're mourning and you're seeking repentance. I'll change my mind. No, God uses human language as a means for us to respond and interact with him. And that might be a little heady or I might just might be hard for me to understand. But let me come back to the children. God does not lie and God knows what to say and how to invite you to him so that you would believe him and enjoy him and fear him. My children know how to take me literally, when to take me literally, and they know when I speak figuratively. I don't think I've ever said, I'm not going to look at my wife, 
I'm going to kill you to one of my kids. I don't think I have. They know what I mean in that moment. God says things to us so that we might hear him and respond and understand him. So God does not change his mind. He also doesn't change his emotions. I don't think we'll have a lot of time to dig into that today. The big question is, what about God's nature? Doesn't God's nature change? Uh, we, we, have, we have Jesus. Jesus was born. Jesus aged. He grew in understanding. He died and resurrected. He went upon a change that we haven't gone. So how has the church, how have we held this understanding of Jesus? Jeff spoke on that briefly a couple weeks ago. That's uh, the fun topic, the hypostatic union. I know it gives you goosebumps right now hearing that. And it simply teaches this. God has two natures, his divine nature and his human nature. God the Son is not one that changes Actually, Hebrews chapter, Hebrews one, Hebrews 102 is quoted in Hebrews 1, that he is without change. His humanity does, but his divine essence doesn't. So we've gone through this theological lecture and there is application. Amen. Hallelujah. One is we have assurance. Our life is not ultimately dependent on a weak and unstable universe. Our hope is not dependent on someone whose temperament changes and is unstable. Our hope is not in the dollar. Our hope is not in our fleeting strength, but on the eternal God who is forever stable. That's what we rest in, a God who is never weak, who is never mindful. Another application is God's affections remain the same. And this is the, the biggest reason why I'm thinking of the younger ones in the congregation today. God's affections do not change. You will have seasons where you are really faithful and then you will have seasons that you just want to put behind and, and lock in a closet. You will have friends that will love you and then that they will leave you and forsake you. You might even have family members that you were really tight with and now reconciliation seems impossible. God's affections for you do not change. Think about it. He does not have to correct how he feels about you. He knows you. He knew you before you were in your mother's womb. He knows the day you will breathe your last breath. He knows the sins you've committed that you thought you would never commit. He knows the sins that, that you haven't caught, even in the rearview mirror as you thought back at your life and what you've done. He knows you and his affections remain the same. In Malachi 3.6, I'm going to read that again. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. 
Through the prophet, he's, he's telling them, you have walked away yet again and been unfaithful. A nation will be my instrument of punishment, but I do not change. I have made a covenant with you. I love you. I will continually pursue you. I am committed. I do not go against my word. I have not been informed with new information. I am with you. We can also learn with God not being one that changes. His promises are sure. Psalm 119 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances. For all things are your servants. What God has promised, he will fulfill. That's comforting if you know Jesus. That is not comforting if you do not know Jesus. So in some of the application of why is this good, how can we interact with this doctrine... One application would be to repent and to believe. You are not going to have that side deal by that chevron. You are not that exception that I talk about quite often. I don't believe some special, divine, intimate relationship between you and God happened. I believe that reconciliation and forgiveness of sins only comes to those that trust in Christ. He will not compromise his character, his being, and he will use no other means but the gospel itself to save those that would repent and trust in him through Christ. Let's go ahead and bow in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you, Father, that you are so much greater and bigger than my mind can comprehend. I pray that we walk away with a pride in who we are. Lord, we live in a a culture that wants to change you and conform you to its likeness. Lord, may we not be tempted in doing so. May we marvel at how you know all things, how you are always trustworthy, that your affections for us are definite. And may we place our hope and our trust in you more than the ground that we stand. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.